Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. Today I'm going to present you with the second part of a special set of episodes that focuses on science in the USSR, and specifically the Soviet project to make the atomic bomb. This is a particular group of physicists in history, and it's partially adapted from some writing and research I did for another podcast about autocratic dictators. I have 13 whole episodes on the life of Stalin on my hard drive, and they'll see the light of day someday. And this really just scratches the surface of the history and the science of this fascinating and pivotal time in world history. But anyway, I hope you enjoy it. The scale of the Soviet attempts to develop the bomb can't be underestimated. They built entire closed cities just for research. The Russian suffix Grad was used to name cities then. Leningrad was the city of Lenin, it's now St. Petersburg again. And Stalingrad was the city of Stalin, famous for the battle that took place there in the Second World War. These cities, the research cities, were named Atomgrads, and they operated under the utmost secrecy. Many of them still exist today under new names, divorced from their original purpose. One of the things that they did was steal secrets through spying and espionage, although one of the things they did was stealing secrets through spying and espionage, although you can overstate the impact that this had on the atomic bomb project. They interviewed the famous physicist Niels Bohr, who was a giant figure in the development of quantum mechanics, and helped develop the model of the atom that we now use. But Bohr didn't really tell them all that much that wasn't publicly known. He was likely sceptical of the Soviets, and the particular secrets of the military were probably unknown to him as well. But one of the key facts that they were able to discover through espionage was the amount of nuclear material required for a critical chain reaction to occur. You may remember from the Teotihuacan nuclear episodes that one of the major risks in earlier nuclear weapons testing and development was during an experiment called Tickling the Dragon's Tail, where brave, or maybe reckless, scientists attempted to determine the precise level at which a critical chain reaction would occur by, essentially, twiddling screwdrivers in lumps of plutonium. Several scientists were killed in undertaking these experiments in the United States. So understanding this piece of information about how much was needed to create a critical chain reaction was crucial for the USSR because it sped up their process of development without needing to do these risky, dangerous experiments. But you can, however, make too much of a deal out of espionage and the stealing of secrets. The basic physics was out there. That was known to everyone. Specific aspects of the design were the classified things that were kept secret. Many scholars seem to suggest that without the stolen secrets... It might have delayed the Soviets by a year or two, but it seems clear to me that they would have got there in the end. There were some of the finest minds of the 20th century working on it. You remember last time that we mentioned that Beria had been put in charge of the project, the sadistic NKVD chief who abused his power to create a reign of terror in the USSR, really. Sakharov, who often clashed with Beria, was a physicist who later became an outspoken critic of the regime and a human rights activist. He was a brilliant young scientist who wrote not long after the war, quote, After more than 40 years, we have had no Third World War, and the balance of nuclear terror may have helped to prevent one. But I am not at all sure of this. Back then, in those long-gone years, the question didn't even arise. What most troubles me now is the instability of the balance, the extreme peril of the current situation, the appalling waste of the arms race. Each of us has a responsibility to think about this in global terms, with tolerance, trust and candour, free from ideological dogmatism, parochial interests or national egotism. It has to be remembered that when the nuclear age was first ushered in, it was a quite incredible moment for history. 
Out of what was then abstract theoretical physics seemed to come this enormous, ungodly power, harnessing the forces unknown to many inside the atom, a much more mystical concept than it was now. The introduction of any new piece of technology brings with it this tension between the possible benefits and the possible destructive applications. We've discussed this on previous shows. Maybe artificial intelligence in our modern era is an equivalent development. For every individual who says it's brilliant and will change the world for better, there are sceptics who see it being used for our destruction. Similarly, at the dawn of the nuclear era, for everyone who saw atoms for peace, in the words of Eisenhower, there were those who saw atoms as a tool of only war. Sakharov was one of the two Russian scientists who designed the tokamak, which has been the major design for a nuclear fusion reactor, and indeed we're still building tokamaks today. They knew that nuclear fusion represented a near-boundless supply of energy that could be harnessed for the benefit of the whole human race. Sadly, the tokamak proved much more difficult to build in reality than they might have thought at the time, but it's clear that Sakharov knew that his genius, and physics in general, could be used for good as well as evil. The science, after all, is neutral. It's the people who exploit it that make the morally questionable decisions. Yet Sakharov was also instrumental in constructing the most explosive bomb that was ever detonated. Tsar Bomba, tested by the Soviets in the 1950s, was the largest hydrogen bomb ever built in terms of explosive yield. So we are a physics show, let's explain a little of the physics of nuclear bombs. A-bombs, atomic bombs, or fission bombs, they're all the same thing. They work in the following way. You have a big bunch of uranium or plutonium. I'll just talk about uranium for now. Uranium has two isotopes, U-238, which is pretty stable, and U-235, which is pretty unstable. If a nucleus of U-235 gets hit by a neutron, it can trigger nuclear fission. The nucleus is unstable, and it splits apart into two roughly equal fragments, releasing neutrons and energy. So consider that you have a whole lump of this stuff. Now a nucleus of U-235 spontaneously splits apart, which can happen. Some of the neutrons produced will escape the lump entirely, others will hit U-238 and they'll be absorbed, and some more will hit U-235 nuclei, and when they hit those, they destabilise them and cause them to split. So you can imagine a situation where you have highly enriched uranium with lots of U-235, where you can have each nuclear fission, on average, releasing one neutron that is absorbed by U-235, and causes that nucleus to split. In other words, each fission causes, on average, one other fission, and so the rate of fission is constant. That's how nuclear power plants work. Effectively, they have control rods that you can dip in and out, and these control rods absorb a certain amount of neutrons. So by pulling the rods out, you can absorb fewer neutrons and cause more fission to happen. So what you do is you lift the rod out a certain way, you let the pile heat up. Once it's producing a nice glow of heat, you put the rods down so that the Overall reaction rate is constant, at which point you'll have a constant rate of fission, constant rate of energy release, and theoretically your sample will glow at a constant temperature. That temperature then turns into steam, it heats water which turns into steam, turns turbines, generates electricity in the normal way. But if your sample is too enriched, if it's big enough that that's not how neutrons escape, or if the control rods in your power plant are accidentally removed, as happened in Chernobyl, you can have more than one neutron escaping on average and causing another fission, which means that the rate of reaction will grow exponentially. At first, you might have 10 reactions a second, but soon enough, you'll have hundreds, thousands, millions, billions, 
releasing colossal amounts of energy in a nuclear explosion. Typically, a nuclear fission weapon triggers a chain reaction by explosively compressing a big lump of uranium or plutonium. This is the cause of many nuclear accidents and concerns that you've had in our Teotwauki specials about nuclear weapons. They actually have very sensitive explosives inside them, which in the early days at least could be detonated by dropping the bombs on the ground. And if the plutonium cores were installed, this would cause a huge chain reaction. So why is this explosive compression phase necessary? Well, essentially, if you had a big lump of enriched uranium, it would very quickly blow itself apart. But it might not necessarily blow itself apart with sufficient energy to cause a huge nuclear reaction. See, the essential goal of nuclear weapons design is to try and find a way to release as much energy in as short a time as possible before the core blows itself apart, when obviously the reactions stop occurring because the nuclei of the radioactive elements are spread far and wide across the countryside. So when Chernobyl exploded, one of the reasons that it didn't go off quite as badly as a nuclear bomb was that there was no forced compression of the radiation and the radioactive material into itself, which really increases that rate of reaction that you have. It's a fine balancing act, really. You can have a certain rate of reaction for a certain amount of time, but if it gets too big, your thing is going to blow itself apart and the reactions will stop. So it's self-limiting, unless you compress it. The atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki then were fission bombs. And how they work is, you have a big ring of explosives, they called it the X-unit, you detonate that, it compresses the uranium-235, uh, the enriched uranium. Enriched uranium used in weapons-grade bombs isn't always completely uranium-235, because that would be unstable and explode by itself. There's a certain amount that means it's vulnerable to being compressed and exploding in this way. So once you've detonated the conventional explosives, it compresses the uranium core, and that blows up in a chain reaction. Those are the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so the only fission bombs, the only atomic bombs that have ever been used against civilian populations were fission bombs. But very soon, they develop thermonuclear weapons, which are different. These are called hydrogen bombs sometimes as well, H-bombs, and they work in a slightly different way. The main source of energy for these bombs is actually nuclear fusion. Remember that heavy elements can release energy by splitting apart, but light elements can release far more energy by being fused together. But this requires a lot of energy input in order to work. So in thermonuclear weapons, there is a primary fission bomb, that releases a vast amount of energy and x-rays. But this then compresses a different fuel, a light element like lithium or an isotope of hydrogen like deuterium. So you have two stages. First, the conventional explosives compress the fission fuel. Then, the detonation from that reaction compresses the fusion fuel. So you have way more compression and you have a more energetic reaction. Instead of being caused by conventional weapons, the final nuclear fusion detonation is compressed by a fission explosion itself. So, in a way, the method of using a traditional fission bomb, a normal atomic bomb, is actually just the compression stage for a fusion explosion. The result is that hydrogen bombs are far more powerful. There's a far more energetic reaction from that fusion fuel. The first H-bomb was about a thousand times as powerful as the first A-bomb, and Sakharov's bomb was even more powerful. Sakharov realised that in order to cause the explosion of one side of the fuel to symmetrically compress the fusion fuel, a mirror could be used to reflect the radiation. Radiation plus mirror was far more symmetric than any design of conventional explosives. 
The details had not been officially declassified in Russia when Sakharov was writing his memoirs, but in the Teller Ulam design, soft X-rays emitted by the fission bomb were focused onto a cylinder of lithium deuterioide to compress it symmetrically. This is called radiation implosion. The Teller Ulam design also had a secondary fission device inside the fusion cylinder to assist with the compression of the fusion fuel and generate neutrons which converted some of the lithium into tritium, producing a mixture of deuterium and tritium, which made the bomb even more powerful. Sakharov's idea was first tested as the bomb RDS-37 in 1955, but there was this large variation which was the 50 megaton Tsar Bomber of October 1961, the most powerful nuclear device, the most powerful explosive ever detonated. Tsar Bomber, which in Russian does indeed mean Emperor Bomb, could be seen from a thousand kilometres away. Its mushroom cloud rose 64 kilometres straight up into the air, and a village that was 55 kilometres away was completely destroyed. This is the equivalent for Brits of a bomb dropped on Big Ben obliterating Gatwick Airport, or for you Americans, if you dropped it on Manhattan, it would destroy half of Long Island. There are tools online that let you draw a 55 kilometre radius on maps. I spent a lot of time actually drawing this on various different places to see how big that is. So that will give you an idea of the sheer rate of destructive power of these bombs. So this was a 50 megaton bomb. The Hiroshima bomb was around 15 kilotons, so this bomb is around 3,000 times as powerful. In all honesty, Tsar Bomber is basically overkill. No one has ever tried to develop a single bigger nuclear weapon than this because it's just not necessary. If you have a bomb of around 800 kilotons, which is around a megaton, it obliterates everything in a 9 mile radius. That is Manhattan. That is London. Go and draw a 9 mile radius on the city of your choice. You don't need anything bigger. Sakharov's bomb is overkill. And yet this man, whose genius helped him to develop the most powerful bomb ever detonated, later became an outspoken critic of the USSR, who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Sakharov later described that it took years for him to understand how much substitution, deceit, and lack of correspondence with reality there was in the Soviet ideals. He said, quote, At first I thought, despite everything that I saw with my own eyes, that the Soviet state was a breakthrough into the future, a kind of prototype for all countries. Then he came, in his words, to the theory of symmetry, all governments and regimes to a first approximation are bad. All peoples are oppressed, and all are threatened by common dangers. End quote. Incidentally, you might be interested to think about, if you can generate fusion reactions through an explosive compression, instead of having a tokamak which contains plasma for fusion, couldn't you explosively detonate a capsule, say, with fusion fuel in it, and harness the energy? Harness the energy of a thermonuclear bomb? Well, people have tried, and we'll discuss that in our episodes on fusion. Back to the USSR, as the Beatles said. Other physicists, like Landau, were persecuted by the regime. Landau was one of those towering, isolated geniuses that you tend to find in science just on occasion. Almost otherworldly figures that I think mystify the rest of us. I read a great article on him in Scientific American which used the phrase detached from the humdrum of everyday existence which is, you know, the physics dream, isn't it? Most of his major theoretical work was in the theory that's called condensed matter physics, which is less sexy than astrophysics, but in some ways far more important, as it tries to explain complex phenomena like magnetism, superconductivity, and generally just the vast array of different states that matter can have. Having your forces of gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak nuclear forces, 
Well, it's all very well to have these nice theoretical equations, but actually working out how stuff behaves is in many ways far more complex. It's said that when Landau ran the Landau School in Kharkov, his entrance exam, referred to as the theoretical minimum, was only ever passed by 43 students across nearly three decades. And that's the minimum. Many of those students would go on to be famous physicists. Landau is likely famous amongst physicists, especially graduate students, for his epic series of physics textbooks, which are simply called Landau and Lifshitz. They are not easy reading, but across ten volumes and thousands of pages, they illuminate in incredible depth and detail many aspects and problems in theoretical physics. Some of the most difficult and rewarding things I ever learned in physics, including a stunning proof of basically Newton's laws and classical mechanics, simply from the fact that space is the same in all directions, came from these books. In some ways, Landauschitz, as it's affectionately known, as well as being an awe-inspiring body of work, is kind of a perfect representation of the contradictory Soviet attitude towards science. Landau and Lifshitz were awarded the Lenin Prize in the 1960s for the works, but it's said that Landau came up with most of the actual content when he was languishing in an NKVD jail cell in the 1930s. Many of the people that Stalin was relying on to build his bomb had been persecuted by the regime for being intellectuals and free thinkers years before. He was there, in that NKVD cell, because he owned a pamphlet containing a rare denunciation of Stalin. It was produced by a group called the Anti-Fascist Workers' Party. It's funny how these words go around and come back around again, isn't it? It said, quote, Comrades, the great cause of the October Revolution has been evilly betrayed. Millions of innocent people are thrown in prison, and no one knows when his own turn will be. Don't you see, comrades, that Stalin's clique accomplished a fascist coup? Socialism remains only on the pages of the newspapers that are terminally wrapped in lies. Stalin, with his rapid hatred of genuine socialism, has become like Hitler and Mussolini. To save his power, Stalin destroys the country and makes it an easy prey for the beastly German fascism. End quote. And in many ways, the writers had a point. Stalin did betray a lot of the ideals of the October Revolution, and in his purges of the army, he rendered the whole system far, far weaker and more rigid, and may have contributed to the initial disaster of Hitler's invasion in 1941. But for more on that, I guess you'll have to listen to the autocrat show. Merely having a copy of this pamphlet, which it was obvious to anyone who saw through the socialist propaganda of the Soviet Union was terribly true, that was enough to ensure that Landau was arrested and tortured. Like so many others in the Soviet era, Landau was forced to sign a confession to being a counter-revolutionary, part of some vast imagined plot to overthrow the state. And he might have died in that cell. He would not have been the only intelligent person to be cruelly snuffed out by the NKVD. But Landau had a friend on the outside, Kapitza, a scientist who was on favourable terms with the government and frequently wrote letters to the Kremlin. Quoting from the Scientific American article written by Gennady Gorelick, quote, After two years of carnage, Stalin had achieved his purpose, to destroy all rivals, real and imaginary. Sensing an opportunity, Kapitza wrote to Prime Minister Molotov, saying that he had just made a discovery in the most puzzling field of the modern physics, and that no other theorist other than Landau could explain it. And on the eve of May Day, 1939, after a year of imprisonment, Landau was freed on bail. In a few months, he had explained Kapitza's discovery, superfluidity, 
using sound waves or phonons, and a new excitation called a roton. It earned both of them a Nobel Prize a few decades later. Landau's genius was coerced into working on the bomb project, but he never liked it, and even swore about other physicists who tried to expand it. He rejoiced when Stalin died, saying that he was no longer afraid of him, and that he would no longer work on the bomb. Again, quoting from that wonderful Goelic article, quote, An obvious question remains. Given that Landau was reluctant to work on the bomb, how is it that his contributions were so substantial? Kalatnikov, who became the director of the Landau Institute for Theoretical Physics, created in 1965, offered me an answer. Landau was simply unable to do a shoddy piece of work. End quote. I think focusing on the lives and biographies of these physicists shows us a fascinating intersection between science and politics, and the personal lives of the people concerned. Many of them got into science for idealistic reasons. Nuclear physics itself had then, and still has now, the potential secrets to unlocking vast sources of clean energy. How this energy is used is a human decision. They might have also thought, as we can see that Sakharov probably did, that nuclear fusion, and all of the riches for humanity that could potentially entail, was just a few decades away. And the scientists wanted to modernise the Soviet Union, as Stalin did, but with different methods and different motives. In the same way, the legacy of Soviet science, which brought a great many technological advances and had a great many fascinating but hidden figures, is complex. For example, when the Soviet Union fell, people pretty much made their careers out of translating physics papers from the original Russian. Countless times, discoveries that were made in the West that had actually been anticipated by obscure Soviet scientists from decades before. But because of that country's isolationism and lack of scientific collaboration, people didn't know what was being done. Ideally, science should transcend politics, otherwise everyone gets held back. But inevitably, when governments control access to the funding, they are inextricably linked. We see this today. Without the communists, science in the USSR would doubtless not have had the emphasis that it did, and perhaps we'd be much further behind. But without the repressive nature of their government, if there had been more collaboration, perhaps we would have achieved much more than we have at present. Nowhere is this tension between science and politics more obvious than in the Soviet bomb project. You can read what the scientists have to say about that work, and many of them report deeply mixed feelings. They describe a community spirit. They were working on a fascinating and vital project that ended in world-changing success and rich financial reward. But they were threatened by the odious barrier and deprived of their liberty. The heartlessness of the Soviet system and the expendability of its people was on display in the atomic program too. But the physicists were strangely protected by their intellects or how they were seen. In a strange way, the Bolsheviks, the Soviets, knew that they needed them. The quiet efforts of the physicists locked away in their secret city, with barrier constantly breathing down their necks, would produce remarkable success. By 1949, they had detonated a nuclear bomb. The rest of the 20th century would unfold in the shadow of a potentially cataclysmic nuclear war. We still live in that shadow today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. It's a little strange to have my voice go up in happiness at the end there, but uh, that's for radio convention, I guess. 
There are so many things you can do to help support the show, and you know most of them. The main one would just be to tell other people about it. The more listeners we have, the more rewarding it is for me, the more feedback I can get from you guys. It's all wonderful. And you want to share this glorious, wonderful show with as many people as possible, I'm sure. Other than that, you can go onto the website at www.physicspodcast.com where you can contact us via the contact form, you can donate to us via the donation button. There's all sorts of things you can do, and anything you send us, I will read. Until next time, stay safe.